0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Uh, If you want to follow along uh, with today's reading, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. There's a Bible beneath the seat in front of you you can use or you can use your device. Uh, If you've been with us during Advent, you know we've been looking at the five dreams that Matthew talks about in the first two chapters of his gospel. And it's the five dreams that surround the birth narrative, how the birth of Jesus came to be. And last Sunday, we read these verses and we kind of looked at part one as to why Joseph, the father of Jesus, was afraid of King Archelaus. And today, we're going to look at the second part. Of the dream, or the second dream where Joseph is told to go to Nazareth. I'll begin reading in verse 19. It says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now I'm telling you, I'm not sure there's any group of verses that has caused more confusion and more debate in the Gospels than the ones that we just read particularly the second part where it speaks about the town of Nazareth. I mean, people have long asked the question, like, well, why are there two dreams? Did the messenger in the first dream make a mistake by sending Joseph and and Mary and Jesus back to the region of Bethlehem and not to Nazareth? Is that why there needed to be a second dream? But the real confusion comes in around the idea of Nazareth and the word Nazarene. And scholars and commentators, literally for centuries, have debated its meaning. And the reason they've debated its meaning is, first off, there are two ways in the Greek, which is the language Matthew wrote in, to spell the word Nazarene. So some people don't even, would argue, we don't even really know what he's saying here. But the real contention comes around when Matthew says, so was fulfilled what was spoken of through the prophets. He will be called the Nazarene. And the reason that there's confusion around that is because it turns out none of the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, or what we would call the Old Testament, say anything about this. The word Nazarene simply means someone from Nazareth. Now, there is the word Nazarite, but that in the, in the Hebrew is a very different word with a different meaning. But Nazarene simply means someone from Nazareth. And here's why the prophets never mentioned anything about Nazarenes. It's because the city, the town of Nazareth was never ever spoken of or written about anywhere in any literature before the time of Jesus. And so how do you prophesy about a person from a town that's never written of? And it's led to a lot of confusion as to exactly what Matthew is getting at especially around this idea of someone from a town that no one seemed to know anything about. Nazareth was completely and totally unknown. The ancient rabbis before the time of Jesus named 63 different towns in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel, 63 towns, they never mention Nazareth. The ancient uh, historian Josephus, he names 45 towns in Galilee, never mentions Nazareth. In Joshua chapter 19, when the people of Israel have come up into the land from Egypt, there are 15 different cities named in the region given to the tribe of Zebulun. All of these little towns around Nazareth are named, but Nazareth itself is not named. It was totally and completely unknown. And outside of the Christian scriptures, or what we would call the New Testament and early Christian writings, Nazareth was never spoken of, and until recently, scholars believed that Nazareth was completely unknown. But in 1962, there were some archaeological excavations done, and for the first time, they discovered an inscription from a synagogue that mentions Nazareth coming from the Jewish people. And that is dated to the fourth century, which means for 300 years after Jesus, you don't hear anything about Nazareth outside of Christian circles. And so it gets a little bit confusing as to how anyone even knew about it enough to write about it. And we do know that for those who did know about it, they didn't think highly of Nazareth at all. There's a story of Jesus's two disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, And Jesus calls Philip and says, come follow me. And Philip runs to Nathaniel and says, hey, the one that we're waiting for has come. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what Nathaniel says in response to that. In John chapter 1, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Sounds like an uppity Coloradan speaking about Texas, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, come on, like, good things come from Texas, like. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) One thing, barbecue? Okay, I prefer Memphis, but that's all right. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? By the way, this is the only story told about Nathaniel. There's no other mention of him anywhere else in the Gospels. He has like a one line that's just like a a, a shot, you know, just taking a shot at Nazareth. But this is how people thought of it. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, if Nazareth was so unknown, then why do we all know about it? Well, because it had a very famous resident and there was a best-selling book written about him. And that, that resident, who was very famous, led to a lot of research that's been done in the last century in Nazareth. And they found that Nazareth and people settling in that town actually goes back 3,000 years to the Bronze Age. And as they've done excavations, they've gotten down to the layers that are the, represent the first century village that Jesus and Joseph and Mary would have lived in. And what they know is it was very small, much less than 10 acres, that it would have been populated by at the most 300 people, but probably more around one to 200 people. They also know that it was a Jewish town and that it was very poor. And one of the ways that they know it was poor is they've actually found skeletal remains and they've shown that these skeletal remains have incredible protein deficiencies and severe arthritis and the life expectation there was about 30 years old because of how poor it was. They've noted that the diet for most people who lived in Nazareth was olives and olive oil, wine, seasonal vegetables, fruit, and nuts. And they said fish and meat were very rare. Some of you are like, I know people now who eat like that. You know, they're like intolerant of everything and they shop at Whole Foods and they love to tell you about like what happens if they eat particular foods even if you don't ask them, right? It's because they think we care. <laughs> and by the way, we do not care. Um, not not care is what I meant to say. Some of you are like, hey, you shouldn't joke about that. That's really, that's really hard. And I agree, it is really hard to listen to people talk about it. But this, this was a very poor, poor town. One scholar said people didn't care enough about Nazareth to even write about it. Another said... This town was absolutely insignificant. Still another said it was nothing more than an ordinary hamlet in the backwoods of Galilee. And as I was reading what scholars were saying about that town, ordinary, insignificant, I began to see a contrast with how we often celebrate Christmas. Like for us, we dress up, we go to parties, We go into debt, we put up a tree, is that what you said? Yeah, and we decorate that tree, don't we? With very expensive lights. And everything is just kind of like this big event around Christmas. And we shouldn't surprise us. I mean, think about the way we live our lives. We're we're people who seem to pursue not the ordinary, but the extraordinary. Especially this time of year, we have all these events or parties that we can go to. And we get the Evite, and then we just click maybe because we don't know what other parties. We also might get invited to on the same night. And if they're close enough, we might be able to go to both of them. And even when we're at the parties, they always fail to deliver. We get really excited, but it's always not as great as we thought it was going to be. And then we begin thinking, I should have gone to the other party. Or we begin planning the next event. Then we go home and we start looking on our phones at social media and we see our friends who were at the other party and we're like, oh my gosh, it was totally better because everything you see on social media is an accurate representation of people's real lives. And how about social media? I mean, is there any better tool to keep us away from the ordinary than social media? Like you want your life to look fake. You want it to look better. You wanna highlight the moments. And so you take 37 selfies just so you can post one of them. By the way, there's a comedian that made a really good observation about selfies. He said selfies should be called lonelies because we used to have people with us that would be able to take our picture. Now it's just us and a stick. (laughs) Oh, that's depressing. But we do everything we can to escape the ordinary, and in some ways, we have this perpetual longing for the extraordinary that we've almost begun to resent the ordinary. There's a Japanese philosopher named Soetsu Yanagi who talks about the ordinary, and he speaks specifically about everyday things. He talks about crafts that are made for us to use in our daily life, glasses and pictures, and utensils, furniture, and he talks about that we've lost an appreciation for just the everyday things in our life, and in doing so, he said, we actually have also lost our appreciation for beauty in the ordinary. He talks about that now we do, instead of having a craft that was handed down through generations, we just have plastic cups that we use once and throw it away, and he argues that the more we are, look at things as disposable, the more that we look at things and don't even see that we're seeing them, he says, the more we will lose our appreciation for the beauty in everything. We need, he says, to appreciate everyday things. The poet Kathleen Norris argues the same thing in her book, The Quotidian Mysteries. And she talks about how if all we're trying to do is get through the day, or if all we're trying to do is kind of tolerate the week so that we can get to the weekend and let off steam, we'll become a cynical and frustrated kind of person. And she says, we need to actually learn to see the beauty in the ordinary. She says this in her book. She says, we want life to have meaning. We want fulfillment, healing, and even ecstasy. But the human paradox is that we find these things by starting where we are, not where we wish we were. We must look for blessings to come from unlikely everyday places, out of Galilee, as it were, not in spectacular events. Basically, we need to learn to see differently because it's not if the sacred and the beautiful is in the mundane in the ordinary. It's whether we see it or not. Later tonight, I'll go home, and my family and I will have our closest friends over like we do every Christmas Eve. And we will finish the night doing what I've done every Christmas Eve since I can remember, and that is watching the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Now, if you've never seen It's a Wonderful Life, I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> Why would you not see them? And if you're here, by the way, and you're like, oh, I don't like that movie, there's actually research that's been done that shows If you don't like It's a Wonderful Life, you don't have a soul. Um, But we'll watch that movie, and if you know anything about the movie, it's about a guy named George Bailey, and George is in a small town called Bedford Falls, and all he does day in and day out is the daily grind, and he feels stuck. Now, George is someone who wanted to do the extraordinary. He was going to build things, bridges and skyscrapers and highways, and he was going to change the world. But time and time again, circumstances came, and what happened is he never got out of Bedford Falls, and he finally comes to the end of himself, and this is when he meets an angel. And the angel's name is Clarence, and Clarence says, George, I'm gonna give you a vision of what the world would be like if you were never born. And so if you know how it goes, he walks through and George sees the life that is being lived in his family and friends without him. And it's an unmitigated disaster. And he comes to this place where he's freaking out and Clarence shows up and he has this one line that I love. He says, you see, George, you really had a wonderful life. The only thing that changed, the only thing that changed for George Bailey was the way he was looking at his life. And that changed everything. And I wonder what would happen if we began to look at this story that we're so familiar with called Christmas, the Nativity, with this town that we've heard mentioned hundreds of times. What if we began to look at that differently? How might that change the way we see the world in which we live? The idea that God, through Jesus, came into the ordinary in a very ordinary way. He was birthed by a woman, Now, some of you who have babies are like, well, that's not ordinary. My baby is special. No, it's special for you, but it's pretty ordinary because all of us here were born. This is how God came in in a very ordinary way to a very ordinary family in a very ordinary and insignificant town. What might that teach us about how close God is to each of us? Because often what's subtly caught and taught in churches is is you have to be extraordinary so that you can get to God. That's a lie. Because the story is that God became ordinary so that he could get to us. The story of Christmas is not only that God came in the first century, but that God is still coming to each of us in our daily routines getting our kids dressed, making coffee on that awful commute to work, when you're filing reports, when you're studying for a final, when you're hanging out with friends, that God is in the midst of all of that, in the mundane, in the everyday, in the laughter, in the tears, in the successes and failures, and in your pain and in your joy. God's in the middle of all of that. And maybe, just maybe, if we have eyes to see God in the midst of the ordinary world, then we will actually learn to see the extraordinary. And the extraordinary that this holy day teaches all of us is that God in Jesus refuses to abandon us. Let's pray together. God, we come, and as we celebrate this holy day, we do so remembering that you were born in the midst of manure and straw and animals. You were born to two teenagers. You moved around the world fleeing political violence and ended up in a town nobody heard of. And you did this ordinary thing to tell us that you are with us, which is why we proclaim your name, Emmanuel. I ask that in the midst of this day that you would give us eyes to see the ordinary differently so that we can see the extraordinary reality and the extraordinary truth that you simply refuse to abandon us. We pray these things together in the name of our God, our
0: King, Jesus. And all my friends said,